As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. I hope you had a nice holiday season. This is episode 155, and I begin my fourth year podcasting. Wow, where has the time gone? This week, I want to talk about a movie that my partner David Isaacs and I were involved with. Actually, two movies, the movie and the sequel, Mannequin. Now, you've heard of Mannequin, of course. You've heard of Mannequin 1. You've heard of Mannequin 2 because I've made fun of it. But we were involved in rewriting both projects. And the reason I'm going to talk about this is because there were a lot of really colorful characters and a lot of kind of interesting stuff going on in the background. So I thought it might be worthy of a fourth year opener, and this is the story of Mannequin. So it's now 1985, and David and I have decided <laughs> to do the Mary Tyler Moore comeback vehicle, Mary. We create this pilot, and we write the pilot, which she loves, and we send it off to CBS, and it's now the beginning of June. And CBS, all of the networks actually, pretty much go on vacation in June. In May, they put together their fall schedule for the upfronts, and then they announce it and they have the affiliate meetings and everything. And then they take the month of June off. Come July, they gear up again and they start developing pilots for the next season. So, we finished the script. We turned it in the beginning of June, and we had a few weeks to do nothing. So we called our agent, and we said, hey, we're free for a couple of weeks. Call Glenn and Les Charles and tell them we're happy to write an episode of Cheers. And our agent calls us back about a half hour later and goes, how'd you like to make five times the money? We said, uh, yeah, okay. And he said, there is a, a rewrite that I put you up for, and they were very excited at the prospect. It would be a two-week polish of an existing script, and they have a start date already. So they just need someone to come in and punch it up and make it funnier, fix some of the story problems, etc. We said, uh, okay, fine, we'll do it in two weeks. What, what is it? It's a thing called Mannequin. What I'm going to do is messenger you over the script, and you can read it, and if you're interested, since time is a factor here, then you can have a meeting at 5 o'clock that afternoon with the producers. He said, oh, okay. So they send over the script, and we read the draft of Mannequin. It was terrible. It was just, just terrible. But, of course, we figure, hey, a couple of weeks, throw in some jokes, what the heck, and we go to meet the producers. Now, normally, when you meet producers, you don't meet the writer of the original draft. And in this case, 
the two writers of the draft were Ed Rugoff and Michael Gottlieb. They were both in the meeting. Michael Gottlieb was also the director. So you figure, God, that's got to be awkward. You know, because when you go into these rewrite meetings, basically you say, well, this sucked and this didn't work and we want to fix this and this makes no sense. Well, it's hard to do that when the actual writers are in the room. But when we walk in the room, they said, look, (laughs) no ego here. Just make the script better. We don't care. You can change anything you want. You have to keep the story as is, but within that, you can do whatever you want. Now, there were a number of other people in the meeting. David Beagleman was the producer. Let me tell you a little bit about David Beagleman. David Beagleman, in 1977, was the president of Columbia Pictures. And in February of that year, actor Cliff Robertson received a 1099 form from the IRS indicating that he had received $10,000 from Columbia Pictures during 1976. And he thought, wait, I never received that money. And he discovered that his signature was on the cash checks, but he had never seen them. So he reported this to the LAPD, and then the FBI got involved, and eventually they verified that the $10,000 check was a forgery, and it was traced back to David Beagleman. So think about this. The president of the studio forges a $10,000 check to an actor. Okay, so Beagleman was ultimately fined and sentenced to community service and a public service anti-drug documentary for the forgeries. Okay, what if you and I had done something like that? We'd spend time in the slammer. Well, he got a slap on the wrist. Well, Columbia Pictures suspended Beagleman on a paid vacation, and then they announced their own investigation. And what they learned was that Beagleman had embezzled an additional $65,000 through other forged checks. You think he's going to be fired for that, right? No. Why? Here's the number one lesson of Hollywood. If you are making money, they will look the other way. Well, the studio wanted to just sweep this under the rug, make it all very hush-hush. And they didn't want Robertson to go public with this. But Robertson, despite all of the pressure from the studios, along with his wife, Dina Merrill, and Dina Merrill, by the way, was very, very rich, they decided to speak to the press. David McClintock broke the story in the Wall Street Journal in 1978, later turned it into a best-selling book called Indecent Exposure, which you really should read. It's, It's quite a treatise on Hollywood. And then Robertson later claimed that he had been blackballed during the 1980s for coming forward 
about the Beagleman affair. Now, think about that. He's the victim. He's the victim, and he's the one who's punished. Well, eventually, they did fire Beagleman as a result of the scandal, but he later went on to run other studios. <laughs> he later was the president of MGM. But before all of this, he was on Judy Garland's management team. Okay, so now we're going back to the 60s, to like 1963. And Judy Garland had all these financial problems, so much so that she got talked into doing a weekly variety series on CBS. She only did it because she needed the money. Well, it turns out that several hundred thousand dollars and a car that she was supposed to receive from being on The Tonight Show were all siphoned away and appeared with David Beagleman. He steals her car and steals hundreds of thousands of dollars. Good job being on the management team. And it's even worse. And I know I'll get back to Mannequin in a minute, but you got to know the background of some of these guys. So this is when Beagleman was on Judy Garland's management team. Boy, talk about a team player. At one point, Beagleman told Garland that a photo existed of her partially nude having her stomach pumped in a hospital emergency room after a drug overdose in London and that the blackmailers were demanding $50,000 to turn over the picture and all of the negatives. And she was in negotiations with CBS at the time for a new television series and she didn't want that to blow up, so she paid the money. Well, it turns out there's no photo. <laughs> there was no blackmail. It was Beagleman who just pocketed the money. Okay, now we jump to 1980. And like I said, he became the president of MGM. Then he started Gladden Entertainment with a gentleman named Bruce McNall, who I'll talk about in a minute. Gladden Entertainment was the company that funded Mannequin and Mannequin 2. It went bankrupt. Beagleman eventually killed himself. He was 73. Okay, that's the producer of Mannequin. The other money man was Bruce McNall. He owned the Los Angeles Kings. He made a fortune originally as a coin collector. On December 14, 1993, he pleaded guilty to five counts of conspiracy and fraud and admitted to bilking six banks out of $236 million over a 10-year period. How long do you think he served in jail? He was sentenced to 70 months. That's it, 70 months, $236 million. He got out in 13 months because of good behavior. <laughs> the third person in this meeting was a studio executive. I'm not going to tell you his name, but he was later involved in the scandal 
Remember Heidi Fleiss, the Hollywood madam, and she had this book with a list of all of her clients? Yeah, well, this studio executive was one of the names on the list. And finally, there was one other person in the meeting. He was an executive producer on the film. His name was Joseph Farrell. Now, he came from research, and it turns out that when the movie was conceived, that it was all based on marketing principles that Joseph Farrell had designed, served to target a very specific audience. So there was going to be so much comedy. There was going to be music in this part. There was going to be this particular love interest. There was going to be this kind of story turn. And Andrew McCarthy, who starred in the movie, who was not a big star at the time, was cast after extensive testing. Young girls were shown films of all these different actors, and they responded the best to Andrew McCarthy, and that's how he got the job. Okay, so David and I go off to do our rewrite for two weeks. And at that point, we decided to institute what we used to call the 24-second logic clock. It's a 24-second clock in basketball where the team that has the ball has only 24 seconds to shoot. That way they don't just bounce the ball up and down for... 35 minutes, which is the way it used to be in college before these rules were enacted. But we said, you know, we're not going to spend an awful lot of time debating, well, would a mannequin say this? Would a mannequin do this? It's like, okay, here's the situation. Does she get on the bike or does she not get on the bike? Uh, She gets on the bike. Go. And we did it. We did not spend an awful lot of time with this. We did our best to kind of ground the movie, if that's possible, in some sort of reality. When we got the original script, it was set in Los Angeles. Eventually, they did it in Philadelphia. But for our draft, and we believed at the time we did our rewrite, that Mannequin was going to be set in Los Angeles. And if you've seen the movie, it takes place primarily in an old established department store. So David and I did some research and we went to the old downtown May Company in Los Angeles and we found out that they had the very first wooden escalators and that Greta Garbo used to get her makeup at the May Company downtown. So we we put in all these little factoids about the department store, assuming that it was going to be in Los Angeles. Well, like I said, they moved it to Philadelphia, but they kept a lot of those references from our draft, including that Greta Garbo gets her makeup there. So now you're going, wait, Greta Garbo goes to Philadelphia to get her makeup? Uh, I, I don't know. So we, we turn in the script in about a week and a half, and we say, you got one day to give us notes for a second draft, and the notes were minimal. We 
pumped a bunch of jokes in there and did what we could. Uh, I look back at it, and one of the characters played by Meshach Taylor was this real flamboyant, gay Hollywood Montrose. And I look back at it now, and I just cringe. I mean, it was just, by today's standards, so terrible, just so unconscionable. But, you know, that was that was the time period. In fact, he became one of the standout characters in the piece, doing that character, and he came back and did Mannequin 2. So we turn in the script. And this is 1985, and the movie does not come out until spring of 1987. And one thing they did right was the music score was fantastic. In fact, the song, which you probably know, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, which was written by Albert Hammond and Diane Warren. It was recorded by Jefferson Starship in 1986. Jefferson Starship used to be Jefferson Airplane. So how surreal is it that Grace Slick, who used to sing White Rabbit and all the psychedelic drug fueled songs of the late 60s with Jefferson Airplane is now singing on Mannequin. But the song went to number one on Billboard and also was nominated for an Oscar. It's the only Oscar that Mannequin ever, well, it was the only nomination that Mannequin ever received for the best original song for that song done by Gracie Slick. The movie cost $7.9 million to make. And I should say that once we turned in that second draft, the phone stopped ringing. We were out of the loop. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention. David Beagleman, again. How could I forget this? When our agent was called by David Beagleman to come and rewrite this movie... At first, he wanted to pay us in television sets. That's right. He wanted to pay us in TVs. Well, how does an agent get 10% of a television set? Well, our agent politely told him, no, you're going to pay him money. You're going to pay this much money, which he begrudgingly agreed to do. And I have to say, in the meeting, you, you could just tell that he, he kind of resented us because he was paying a reasonable salary. You know, and it's not like we were Carrie Fisher and we were getting $100,000 a day. <laughs> you know, we're not A-plus list rewriters. You know, we we did our rewrites on various things, Jewel of the Nile and that sort of thing. But uh, he resented the fact that he actually had to pay us. So when the movie came out, my wife and I and David and his wife went to Westwood to see it. We had not seen any screenings. We had not seen any final drafts. We did not receive credit, which we didn't expect to. And so we were watching this movie, and 
they would keep punchlines of ours, but they had taken out the setups, so the punchlines didn't work. Or they would keep the setups of jokes and then drop the punchlines, so you didn't know why the setups were there. We're watching this movie, and we're just going, oh, my God, this, oh, this is terrible. This is just terrible. Well, it turned out that the movie was a hit, <laughs> that, that, that people really liked it, and it made money. It was the number three movie that week behind Platoon and Outrageous Fortune, which is kind of ironic since that starred Shelley Long, but it wound up making an awful lot of money. $42.7 million in the United States and Canada. And like I said, it costs less than $8 million. It was a huge hit. I went back later and saw it with a crowd. And I saw it in a different light, I have to say. I, I could sort of see where it was kind of charming and frothy and the music was good uh, when I wasn't seeing how many of my lines were still there and what worked and what didn't, I, I kind of saw why it was successful. I have to say, though, going back, that the critical acclaim <laughs> was, was very little. Uh, let's see here. Rita Kempley of the Washington Post called the film made by four and about dummies. And Janet Maslin of the New York Times puts the blame on the writer-director as co-written and directed by Michael Gottlieb, Mannequin is a state-of-the-art showcase of perfunctory technique. Ouch. Dan McQuaid, writing in the online version of Philadelphia Magazine, though, referenced the film's use of Philadelphia as a setting after panning the film itself, but he said, the message of Mannequin, clumsy as it is, is that the greatest place and time in recorded history in 1980s is Philadelphia. Truly, this is the most uplifting film ever made about the city. Yeah, I might say that Rocky was a, a little better. Um, I could probably find 14 other movies besides Mannequin, but okay. Since the movie was a hit, they, of course, decided to make a sequel. David and I get a call from David Beagleman. Beagleman gets on the phone with me, and he says, and just in this tone, it's exactly this tone. All right, uh, we're doing the sequel, and we want to go with you guys just for fucking luck. Oh, well, thank you so much. And, uh, and I said, well, we'd be happy to do it, David, for more fucking bucks. And he grumbled and hung up. And then our agent called an hour later saying, okay, they agreed to it. So now we go off to do Mannequin 2. And it's the same thing. We have like a, a two-week rewrite. This script was just terrible. This was really, really bad. 
there was like some crazy German Kaiser or something. I don't know. But we're doing the best we can with this script. And one thing that I feel very sheepish about, there was a guard that was in the piece named Andy. And at one point we had some official ask him, what is your name? And so we had to give him a last name. We gave him the name Andy Ackerman, figuring oh, this will be changed. Andy Ackerman, of course, is a longtime director. He directed many of the episodes of Seinfeld. You've seen his name a million times on TV. He directed Cheers. He directed the pilot of Big Wave Dave's and Almost Perfect for Us. Great director. And I just feel so bad that his name actually made it into the movie. Now that one, since the stars wanted nothing to do with it, that one stars Christy Swanson, who at the time was kind of a newbie, and William Ragsdale. A few years later, I was directing an episode of, uh, actually I directed three episodes of uh, an ABC series that he starred in called Brothers Keeper. It was like one of those TGIF Friday deals. And when I met him for the first time, since I was not in the, picture when it came to filming Mannequin 2. We weren't there at all. Um, I I introduced myself and I said, uh, you and I share the distinction of being part of one of the worst movies of all time, <laughs> Mannequin 2. And we kind of bonded uh, as a result of that. Well, that particular movie, the original draft was by Edward Rugoff, who was the writer along with Michael Gottlieb, of the original. And what happens is anytime writers are brought on a project and the studio assigns credit to one of them so that the original writer doesn't have sole credit, it automatically goes to arbitration. We get the writing credits, the proposed writing credits from the studio, and this is what they proposed. For Mannequin 2, written by Edward Rugoff and Ken Levine and David Isaacs and Betsy Israel. And we thought, really? So we called our agent and we said, do we want this? Because this movie could be just a, a tremendous embarrassment for all involved. And he said, you do because you will then share in the royalties. So when it goes to TV, that sort of thing, you're going to make some back-end money on this if you have credit. We said, okay, well, these things go to arbitration. And when they do, all of the writers have to write a statement saying why they feel they deserve credit in the project. If you have five writers, then you have writer A, writer B, writer C, writer D, etc. And everybody writes 
these long, impassioned, three-page statements, how this movie was the story of my life, and I sacrificed a kidney for this movie, and I went behind enemy lines in Afghanistan to do research, and my toe was shot off, and I deserve at least story credit. Well, what are we going to (laughs) do? So we just wrote, well, according to the credits manual, we think the credits should be as proposed. Sincerely, Ken Levine, David Isaacs. We won. So we get shared credit along with Ed Rugoff and Betsy Israel. We don't know who Betsy Israel is. She must have come on the project after us. I went on IMDb to look up Betsy Israel Mannequin 2 is her only screenwriting credit, and the only other credit that is listed is an article that she once wrote for Playboy magazine. I have no idea who this person was. It was directed by Stuart Rayfill, who we never met. He had directed Ice Pirates, and uh, this movie cost $13 million dollars. So this movie cost almost twice as much as the original. And remember, the original made like about $43 million. This one made $3.8 million. I went to see it at the time it came out. I was broadcasting for the Baltimore Orioles, and we were in Detroit that Friday that it opened. And our hotel was right next to a big cineplex, and it was playing it. So I went to see the movie, giant theater, giant theater, eight, 900-seat theater. I'm the only one in there for the 1230 show. Literally the only one in there. And I'm watching this thing, and I'm thinking, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, doing a little research uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics gave it a 13% approval rating. The audience, however, gave it a whopping 41%. So, yeah, we rock. By the way, Mannequin 1 got like a 23% (laughs) approval rating from critics. There was one L.A. paper, I don't know which one, but in the review, they said, watching this movie, this was like stepping in something. That's not good, right? That's not terrific. Let me see. Kevin Smith of the L.A. Times said this. From start to finish, Mannequin 2 on the move is insipid in the extreme. Thank you very much. It's always nice to get that kind of review in your hometown paper. Then Variety said, also my hometown publication, it took four writers to struggle with another idea of why a mannequin would come to life in a department store and what would happen if she did. Mm -hmm. And Robert Hurlbert of the South Florida Sun Centennial said, could somebody please tell me why four scriptwriters were needed for Mannequin 2 on the move? 
Interestingly enough, remember in Mannequin 1, Janet Maslin, the very fine New York Times movie critic, panned it, thought it was a piece of shit. This is what Janet Maslin said in the New York Times. This film has enough new characters and independent spirit to have a light, cheery style all its own. We got a good review from the New York Times on Mannequin 2. Uh, like I said, it did not make a lot of money. It has been uh, something that uh, I've been able to use uh, a lot of fodder for self-deprecating jokes. But here is the, uh, here is the punchline. Gladden Entertainment went bankrupt. David Beagleman committed suicide. Bruce McNall went to prison. Mannequin 2 has been on network television, has been on cable television, has been on DVD, Blu-ray. It's even packaged with Mannequin 1. How much money do you think we have received in royalties? Zero. Company has been disbanded. People are gone or in prison. Try tracking anybody down. So for all of that, we have made absolutely nothing. And that is a typical Hollywood story. Thank you very much. All right, on to the fourth year. That'll do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, Bruce, and Jason Miller. If you want to write me, I have an email address, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Again, that is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I am on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. I'm also on Twitter, at Ken Levine. And you know, it'd be nice for the new year to give me a five-star review and maybe say something nice about this. I know, I just plug it every single week. Uh, but uh, onward, <laughs> onward and sidewards to year four. Thanks so much for listening the first three years. And if you're new, then go back and catch some of the archived episodes you know in 155 episodes there's four or five really good ones thanks so much talk to you next week bye-bye hollywood and the fine